victory in Israel for the round number. You'll never guess what it's about. New Israeli film tackles the taboo. Did 6 million Jews die in the Holocaust? Filmmaker David Fisher's latest documentary, the controversial The Round Number, explores how the toll was determined and why many are loath to call it into question. The documentary film is provoking controversy for its attempts to confirm whether 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. The film titled The Round Number, played at the Jerusalem Film Festival last year, aired Sunday evening on the Hot 8 channel in Israel. The film deals with the round number of 6 million Jews killed in the Holocaust, how it was established and why it has become so untouchable, despite obviously not being an exact figure. The round number explores why and how the number 6 million was written into the canon, what its meaning can teach us about the Holocaust. And David Fisher speaks with a wide range of historians in the film to answer the question. Nobody responsible or no self-respecting historian will tell you that 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Hannah Yablonka, professor of Holocaust studies at Ben-Gurion University, tells David Fisher... In this film, history professor Omer Batov, meanwhile, tells David Fisher that the exact final figure will never be known. One of the characteristics of genocide is that you'll never know all the victims. So let's have a look at the preview. Four million Jews had been killed in the various concentration camps, while an additional two million met death in other ways, making a total of six million. אף אחד היום שהוא בר אחריות או היסטוריון שמכבד את עצמו לא יגיד לך שבשואה נרצחו שישה מיליון. אם יש מספר שהתקבל מתקדש שישה מיליון, צריך לתת לו להישאר איפה שהוא. this number is it on the owls the Jews round number by David Fisher so I wish there was a way to watch this online looking forward to seeing this so David Fisher he's 65 years old he's the child of two Holocaust survivor parents he's produced more than a dozen films so the origins of this one, the round number, can be linked back to his award-winning 2011 film Six Million and One, which traces his father's experiences in the Holocaust and the trauma that remained with him for the rest of his life. So both of my parents are Holocaust survivors. They lived their lives like victims, David Fisher says in the trailer for the round number, adding, so from my perspective, the number is not six million, but six million and two. Fisher says he's not seeking a definitive answer or figure. 
I wasn't trying to do a count myself, and I didn't seek out people who were involved in the counting. He came across a variety of different numbers from historians and other figures over the years, suggesting that the number could be higher or lower than 6 million. I was curious where this number 6 million came from, how it became so fixed and so sanctified that people warn you to leave it alone. The number 6 million to become an institution, and I wanted to stick a pin in it to try to understand where this number came from. So Yad Vashem, that's a Holocaust memorial organization in Israel that uh, honors righteous Gentiles who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Yad Vashem historian Dina Parat says, this film treads on dangerous ground. This film will leave the borders of Israel. It already has captions in English, and it is a problem. I'm worried about it. The touchy nature of the film has made it difficult to sell to film festivals abroad. Germany, they told me, we can't allow ourselves to air such a film to our audience. We are worried that the film will come across as if we are supporting Holocaust denial. When the film was released in Israel, it was praised for its nuanced approach to a complicated and controversial idea. It's a thought-provoking film, provocative in its own humble way, about a pain that will not abide, about historical truth, and about the secularization of holiness. And speaking of holiness... So I was listening to Richard Spencer's latest interview yesterday, and he was talking about how nationalism is a ship magnet. That was the title of uh, Jim Goad's autobiography. And uh, I don't buy it. I don't believe that nationalism inherently appeals to the Western people. Now, there are certain types of nationalism that operate as a ship magnet. So Richard Spencer might want to face that he has been a ship magnet. Uh, Jim Goad wrote his autobiography calling himself ship, ship magnet. So maybe that is Richard Spencer's lived experience. But it's not inherent in nationalism. Nationalism simply means that you love your people. Right? And loving your people does not inherently bring out the worst. For some people, nationalism may bring out some Nazi characteristics, but if you love your people, that means you want to protect your people, and you want to protect your people against enemies. But there's absolutely nothing inherent in nationalism that makes it a ship magnet. Nationalism is just as likely to attract the best in people as it is to attract the worst in people. Nationalism just means you want to protect your family. But there's nothing inherent in nationalism that, that attracts you know, bad people. So I don't buy it when Richard Spencer says nationalism is a ship act. Yeah, the type of nationalism that he espoused perhaps worked a, as a ship magnet. But when you look at other types of nationalism, English nationalism, French nationalism, German nationalism, Japanese nationalism, Chinese nationalism, Australian nationalism, Jewish nationalism, black nationalism, Mexican nationalism, it doesn't inherently attract you know, the worst people, the dregs of society. Now, white nationalism in the United States has tended to attract the worst people. So, in certain times and contexts, nationalism, I don't like using profanity, but I, I don't think it's avoidable here. So, in certain times and places, nationalism is, is a, can be a ship magnet, right? In certain circumstances, given the way incentives are functioning, then, then certain types of nationalism can br absolutely bring out the worst in people. But uh, overall, nationalism just means you love your family and your extended family. Your people is just your extended family. You love your own. You feel national. 
the nation is simply the largest group of people that you consider you know, part of you, an inherent part of you. And nationalism rose in the, in the 19th century. It's been the most powerful political animating force in the past 220 years. Like decrying nationalism to me, it's like decrying the sex drive. It's like, oh, you know, this horniness, sexual arousal acts as a shit magnet. Well, it can't. Like, sexual arousal can lead people to say and do really horrible things. But, like, do we, do we really want to condemn the, the sexual impulse because some people misuse it? Do we want to condemn fire? Like, fire can be used in a very destructive way. People have been burned at the stake. But, fire can also warm your home. Fire can help prepare your food. There are lots of useful ways to use fire. So, yeah, there, there are arsonists out there. So you could you could say fire is a shit magnet because there are people who abuse fire. But there's nothing inherent in the quality of fire that attracts only bad people. There's nothing inherent in the sexual impulse that only attracts bad people. And there's nothing inherent in nationalism that only attracts bad people. Hey, Colin Liddell put that together for his uh, affirmative right site, and uh, here's another video from Colin. Come on, Nick. Get it together here, mate. Okay. Come on, Nick. Let me see. Hear it. I have to move the microphone down, maybe. Come on, Nick. Is that a threat? Are you threatening me? Are you threatening me? Are you threatening me? Is that a serious threat? That's my favorite line. That's my favorite line. This just demonstrates how hollow and wicked you are. He's literally like crying. He's literally on the verge of tears. This just demonstrates how hollow and wicked you are. That's classic. <laughs> Accusing of being a child molester. Wow. I can tell you're very upset, wow. Richard.
Is that a threat? I, oh, a fighting words. I think that's a threat. I think that's a threat. All right. Have a nice night. So, for context, what's funny about that is, um, well, for starters, that was like, that was into the call. Because he initially called me, and I was like, I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, you know, and he starts going off on me, and I gave it right back to him. I was like, fuck you. I was like, this movement is mine. You're over. Your career is over. You're going to hell. You're a degenerate. And then I figured, well... If I, because then he starts like, saying, movie. like, well, I'm going to beat you up. And I figured, like, well, if I could record him, then I could, I could get him charged for making a threat. I could charge him, get him charged for making a legally actionable threat. So then I started recording. And I was saying, like, wow, because I was like, I was trying to just like goad him into saying more things on the phone because I knew I was recording so I could like leak that or get him to say something illegal. So at that point, I was just like, okay, like, you know, give give me something else. Give me something else. Um, and then, then I actually encountered him in DC. That was uh, in December or January before CPAC, I think in 2019. And, um, so then I saw him when he says, you better hope you never see me. I, that's literally what happened. Then like two months later, I literally bumped into him in Alexandria, Virginia, where he used to live just walking down the street. Cause I swear to God, this is what happened. I was there in DC for CPAC and me and my buddies were in Alexandria. I was meeting a couple of friends for dinner and they were like, we were like, wouldn't it be crazy if we bumped into him? Because we knew that he lived there. And we just went there because there was this bar that they like. And I, they were, we were like, wouldn't it be crazy if we like bumped into him? Because he lives like right here. And that's exactly what happened. We literally crossed paths with him. And I came up to him and I'm like, hey, Richard, are you going to kick my ass like you said on the phone? I said, let's do it. I said, you ready to do this right now? And he's like, and I was with like three people. And he's like, can we just talk? And then so we go step aside. He's like, can we just talk without your friends? There's a picture of this. I have this picture on my phone. Um, let me see if I have it. Okay. So uh, doesn't sound like uh, Richard Spencer was in uh, master of his domain for a few years there, flying off the, the handle in ridiculous ways. Okay, here is a discussion about... Uh, China's missile strategy. The investments that we've seen the Chinese make in hypersonics are frankly startling. To a certain extent, I have to tip my hat to them. They have made incredible progress in many cases because they built on work that we did. We took our foot off the gas. They saw an opportunity. They were able to build on our developments, build on our research, and uh, they, they have run with it. And it has given them a capability that, frankly, I believe right now is startling and is increasingly concerning. You mentioned the fractional orbital bombardment test that was widely reported in the press. That, to me, is notable for several reasons. One, it was a difficult thing to do technically. So it shows that the Chinese have clearly developed uh, a level of technical prowess that is notable. But it also shows intent. I think it was uh, uh, John Hayton, uh, who, uh, the former uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who said you know, that clearly looks like a first strike capability. 
that's what that weapon looks like. And to me, it signals that the Chinese are looking at technologies that not only allow them to control the space in, in, their, in their immediate domain, Indo-PACOM, Indo they're looking at global capabilities, and they're using technologies to, to, to enhance that. So, so that, to me, is, is the big story about China. Now, I also will point out, and I hope we'll get a chance to discuss this, my, my other big concern about China is we know that they will not apply the same ethical standards to these, this range of technologies that we will. Okay, that, that's ridiculous. We need to be worried about this technology because the Chinese are not going to apply the same ethical standards that, that we do. What? Uh, oh, man. I don't have my setup correct. Like our, our, our ethical standards are our national self-interest. Right? We don't have this like high ethical standards. Uh, so I don't think... Uh, I think we need to, to worry that uh, the Chinese won't live up to our ethical standards. I think we'll find that the Chinese pretty much match our ethical standards. Things like artificial intelligence, things like biotechnology. We have very, very rigid ethical standards. Oh, we have very rigid ethical standards. Look, when national interest is at stake, you think we're going to be bound by those very rigid ethical standards? You think if uh, we need to manufacture poison gas or other bioweapons that, that uh, turns out to be in our national interest, you think we're going to be held back by our very rigid ethical standards? Give me a break. This is naive. And how we would use artificial intelligence, what we would allow autonomous systems to do in the battlefield. Um, I think we can have no confidence that the Chinese would apply those at all. Same thing with biotechnology. We have very, very rigid standards about what we will do and what we will that's ridiculous. We don't have rigid standards. You can't afford, no nation can afford to have rigid standards if it wants to survive. The primary challenge for every single nation state is to survive. Nation states don't know what other nation states are going to do. Therefore, the best way to ensure their survival is to become as strong as possible. As each nation state becomes as strong as possible, it then threatens the nation states around them. Right? We're all locked in an iron cage together. We're like drug dealers where drug deal goes wrong. You can't go to the police. You can't go to the courts. They so were all locked in this iron cage together. And if you're going to survive, you think you can, you can hold yourself back according to very rigid ethical standards? No. It, it's kill or be killed. The strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. Are you okay with the U.S. being weak in these areas because of these very rigid ethical standards? It's a kill or be killed world frequently. But there's no higher authority that's going to regulate conflict between nations. So nation states can't afford to abide by rigid ethical standards in any area. Now, it may be in a nation state's best interest to uh, appear to comply, to make some, some measures of, of compliance, to use rhetoric of compliance. But when it comes down to it, Right? It comes down to power, military power that is underlain by economic power. And if you're in a fight to the death, are you really going to hold yourself back with your very rigid ethical standards? Will not do in the area of biotechnology. There's nothing that a nation state won't do if it needs to do that unthinkable thing to survive. Just because it is rational for us to do X does not mean that we are doing X. Yes. But if you have to do X to survive, 
you're either going to do X and survive, or you're not going to survive anymore, in which case your rigid ethical standards don't matter. So either way, your rigid ethical standards don't matter, except in terms of public relations. So if you can get people to buy that you're bound by very rigid ethical standards and therefore they should uh, form alliances with you, that therefore you're not threatening to other people, if people are so naive to buy that nonsense, then, then milk it for all it's worth. But the only meaning that high ethical standards have in the world of international power struggles are for public relations. Yes, non-survival is a possibility. If you don't survive, your ethical standards don't matter. Your ethical standards are gone with the wind. And I think we've seen that the Chinese do not ha share, share those values and apply those. And, and, and what values did we apply when we were you know, bombing German cities uh, during World War II? I, I'm not complaining about it. I mean, I don't care, but uh, you, can't, you can't claim that the United States of America has, has a, abided by significantly different ethical standards when it wages war than other nations. There's no evidence that democracies abide by higher ethical standards in the waging of war than other nations. In fact, the evidence John Mishaimer notes point in, in the opposite direction, that democracies tend to be even more bloodthirsty in, in the waging of war because they have to satiate public opinion, while a dictator uh, may be less vulnerable to public opinion. Those standards. And that, to me, is a very, very startling realization. The scope of the acceleration is breathtaking. What the public mostly sees are like the silo bases. So, so you, you have three new bases, lots of silos, probably going... Okay, interesting video there on China's missile strategy. Contesting American identity, Glenn Lowry talking about Amy Someone who emigrated from India, no, let me Three finish, ago. and has taken advantage of everything our society has to offer. As opposed to someone from Los Angeles, doesn't try to take advantage of everything our society has to offer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with someone who abides by the laws of our system and tries to take advantage of our system while behaving legally. I mean, doesn't everyone do this? So therefore, there's a higher moral onus on, on people who, who come from India? Who ha is leading the good life, who is part of the elite. Why shouldn't that person be abjectly grateful? And because we take our cues from other people, right? If it's the socially cool thing, the socially important thing to do in your peer group is to be upset at the United States of America, to be vitriolic about America's racism, then people from India, just like people from Idaho and people from Alabama and people from Australia, are going to follow social cues, right? So outrage against racism is socially constructed. Racism socially constructed? Fine. Racism socially constructed. Outrage against racism is socially constructed, right? Everything is socially constructed except for biological realities, right? Beliefs about God are socially constructed, and contrary beliefs about the non-existence of God, also socially constructed. Yeah, it's all socially constructed. And, you know, recognize overtly all the wonderful things about our country. Why should they be on the ramparts bashing our country? And, and why, why should Anglicans be on the ramparts bashing our country? You know, why should Jews be on the ramparts? Why should blacks? Why should Latinos? Why should Asians? All right. I don't think she's making a very strong point, singling out people from Southeast Asia. I just 
the, me makes no well, sense. Well, let me speak for them <laughs> for a moment. They're merely conforming to the ethos that they have uh, inherited when they entered into these institutions. They didn't bring wokeness with them. They didn't invent wokeness. They're just trying to get. Yeah, I suspect that the Hindus in India are not that woke. So he's Glenn Lowry is exactly right here. And, and I think Amy Wax has unnecessarily damaged herself with, with what she's saying. If you're going to single out specific groups saying we don't need more of them, you need to you need to be very precise and very specific and very evidence-based in making your arguments. And she fails here. Goodbye. Uh, and by the way, many of them are deeply ambivalent about it. I think your characterization, your broad brush of uh, South Asian, therefore, uh, adherence to this wokeness is, is not accurate. I mean, I, I think, for example, I just read Matt Taibbi's recent post about Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, and he says, what was the race story in Loudoun County? This is a short version of his, I think, very fine uh, reporting. He says it wasn't about critical race theory and how do you talk about uh, race and slavery? It was about South Asian uh, uh, first and second generation immigrant families who want to get their kids into. Um... Right. So remember all the despairing talk after the election about how, how we're doomed, that the, the, the left is just doomed to, to rule this country. And it's just not true. Right? The, the, the left wing coalition united around hatred of, of Christian white people right, is going to splinter. There are plenty of Southeast Asians and Northeast Asians and Latinos and some black men going to splinter away from the Democratic coalition. And uh, Republicans have a very good chance of taking back the House and the Senate this year and to win back the presidency in 2024. So remember, like, the sky is falling. Uh, conservatives are going to get hunted down. Have you been hunted down? Remember, dominant rhetoric among the alt-light was that after the 2020 election result, conservatives were just going to be hunted down. They were going to be put into concentration camps. They were going to get fired from their jobs. They were going to be you know, stigmatized and their lives ruined. Well, I don't think that's generally speaking happened to Trump voters, right? And I wasn't uh, terribly worried about Joe Biden taking office because I, I figured that both his, his instincts are fairly centrist to center-left, and I, I didn't think that he had the ability to push through a much legislation, which is exactly what's happened. He has not had the ability to push through push through a, a watered-down infrastructure. does not keep it not. You know, uh, the top uh, technical school in the area and who want gifted and talented and, and who are pissed off at uh, the uh, uh, implicit racism against their success that the equity mongers who say there are not enough blacks and the gifted and talented and therefore we have to get rid of it um, uh, are the, the Thomas Jefferson High School of Science and Technology, which is not in Loudoun County, but which Loudoun County sends many of its students to under a special program that was called into question because there are not enough blacks in the. And he says that's the real story that got Terry McAuliffe defeated in Virginia. Brown people, not white people, objecting to wokeness. So, so I, you know. Well, you're right. I mean, there is, you know, these are rank and file people. These are not sort of intelligentsia academics. Maybe a few of them are, but most, yeah, of, most them of them are, are engineers and computer science yeah, types who are working on federal contracts for, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there are some divides within the South Asian Indian community along those lines, but even the ones in Loudoun County who are objective. And Amy Wax talks about how she'd like less racial well, single out when you with people from yeah then when those groups share much of your politics they're probably not going to align with you i think she had a self-inflicted wound to you know the the dissolution of the meritocracy which they think favors them which it does uh their their critique is limited okay they they stay away from race because they know that that's you know a third rail Uh, Of course, it's impossible to advocate for the meritocracy and stay away from race, as the two have been melded together by the woke uh, politburos. So they're treading on very dangerous ground. So I agree that there are are factions within the South Asian community, but they still vote Democratic, Glenn. And the leadership, leadership in medical schools and science, they are still embracing wokeness with Venomous enthusiasm. Venomous. <laughs> I, I just stare at them and think, I want to ask them, why are you here? Of course, that's a per- Same reason. They came here to better their lives, and part of bettering their lives belief. People want to side with power. As power, academia, corporate life, and Legal life, cultural life, and life. Powerful. Forbidden question. You're not allowed to say, why are you here? That's that's aggressive. What? Uh, why yeah, I mean, are you This is close to love it or leave it, Amy. I, I'm sure you don't want to. Yes. You, America. Yes, you're, you're allowed to say why you're here, but it's an inflammatory way of Posing the question, love it or leave it. Come on. No, but there there is an it, there's an intermediate position between love it and leave or leave it, which is really what CRT CRT controversy is all about, which is balance. We never hear, we rarely hear, the positive case, the praise of the founders, the praise of the the traditions of the legacy. Well, if everyone around you is denigrating the founders. Why, why should we expect uh, Southeast Asian and Northeast Asian and Latin American immigrants to praise the founders when the dominant elites in this country are denigrating the, the founders? So I don't think she's making a, a strong, strong case for, for her argument. You're going to say inflammatory things. You need to, and you want to do good in the world and not just make an emotional reaction then you need to think through what you're saying, how it's going to be heard, how you can phrase things in a way that a maximum number of people can hear and be open to persuasion, and then provide abundant evidence for your case. The The best example of this coming to mind is Charles Darwin's classic on the origin of species. Throughout that book, he amasses abundant evidence for his case. He doesn't overstate his case. He presents arguments from geography, and from various, you know, animal species. And he just loads argument after argument after argument. And at the same time, he says, if the following evidence was found, it would destroy my thesis. So he, he 
gives countless examples of what would invalidate his thesis. If you can show me X, Y, Z, that would invalidate my thesis. And then he just comes page after page after page of argument from evidence, right? Uh, On the Origin of Species, probably the most powerful, important, influential book of the past 200 years, and deservedly so. It is, it is a model for how to make a case. Like, no inflammatory language understates his case, provides evidence, and offers up what would be contradictory evidence. So I think Amy Wax should read Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species and think about more effective ways of, of phrasing things. So I'm rereading this terrific, terrific book, Religion in Secular Society. So this book was published in 1966, the the year I was born. And when when change happens incrementally, we don't we don't notice how big it has been over the past uh, 150, 200 years. And the place of religious thinking, religious practice religious institutions, right? They were once at the very center of Western life. They're they're at the center of all societies. And it's simply not true today. Religious thinking does not dominate our lives today. So if you got up in the morning, you may have health practices that you participate in. You have cleanliness rituals. You, You get to work and your work is regulated by technology and by specialization. And so with increasing specialization and with the widening of the number of interests, the world steadily becomes less and less religious. So it's, it's uh, moved pretty inevitably over the past 150 years. And religious practice may atrophy, for example, in Scandinavian countries, or it may persist in its traditional forms and even become more extensive such as in the United States, but its meaning changes, right? Religious institutions are very showy in America. They seem to have a lot of power, but they don't have much power over how ordinary Americans lead their lives. My estimation is that 95% of Christians lead lives that are indistinguishable from their secular peers, with the exception of they go to church and they may use some religious language. But just because you go to church once a week if the rest of your life doesn't show any difference from a secular life, then your time in church and your religious affiliation is meaningless in practical terms. Why was Dr. Wax wearing a hair covering, a babushka hair covering? I don't know. I I noticed a lot of women do this. I remember there's this very attractive woman, not very attractive, moderately attractive woman that I was around on a regular basis for years. And on those days when she'd wear a babushka head covering, it just killed any attraction. I'm sure that was absolutely devastating for her. So we've got plenty of religious institutions, but religious thinking is less and less present in our lives, right? People around us in the United States, right? People who go to church, right? But they go to church, but they act less and less in response to religious thinking and religious motivation. People increasingly assess the world in empirical and rational terms. They work in rational organizations. They follow rationally determined roles. And your workspace and your, your life in 21st century America, with exceptions for you know, religious worship, generally speaking, allows very small scope for your whatever religious predilections you might privately entertain. 
Now, it's no longer the dogmas of the Christian church which dictate behavior. Now, religious organizations have responded to the changing social order, and they responded in, in different ways. And so in Britain, people have largely stopped going to church. In America, people still go to church, but there's no difference in their daily behavior between those who go to church and those who don't. In Europe and in Australia, you're a weekly churchgoer, then the rest of your life is quite different from your secular peers, but uh, not so in America. So it's in the Protestant nations, the Northern European, Scandinavian Protestant nations, that we had the first secular societies, to the best of our knowledge, in world history. Right? They have emerged out of Protestantism because Protestantism is a significant secularization move away from Catholicism. Catholicism wanted to shape and influence all of life. Protestantism said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. So Protestantism steadily pulled back the realm of religion, the realm of its influence, so that you had you know, realms that were for Caesar. And Protestantism, even in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, when it was you know, burning hot and feverish, was still a significant reduction in religiosity. It was a significant step towards secularism. And so the world's first secular societies in all of human history have emerged in Scandinavia. So even though people go to church quite often in America, you still see in their behavior, particularly like in the way Americans do business, it's, uh, it's incredibly secular, all right? Uh, religious scruples and religious thinking does not much affect how Americans do business. does not much affect you know, who they have sex with. So I find it most useful to try to understand religion as a subset of culture. So Christianity in Africa is very different from Christianity in Alabama or Christianity in Australia. From legacy population. The other side of the story about the fate of Black America, I wrote a Newsweek piece about this. I said, I really against censoring CRT because that's not the American way. You know, the government isn't really supposed to dictate what's being said, although they have some leeway in the education sphere. And uh, the chat says, have I read any Protestant confessions? Yeah, I mean, I grew up a Protestant. My, my life was filled with uh, Protestant confessions, and uh, my dad was a Protestant theologian. But uh, dogma plays very little role in the lives of the overwhelming number of Christians. Certainly for individuals, religion is still powerful, even the most powerful determinant of the conduct of their lives. But that's not true of most Americans. That's not true of most people in industrialized societies, whether Japan or Scandinavia or even Italians, Spanish, French. So you still have persisting institutions of religions in societies where lay support has ebbed, where Religion plays less and less role in how people behave. But uh, theological meanings are socially constructed and they socially evolve. 
churches as social institutions. Uh, I'm reading and summarizing from C. Bruce's excellent book from 1966, Religion in Secular Society. So churches are social institutions, conceptions of God, theology are socially constructed, socially prescribed, and protestations against these conceptions are also socially constructed and prescribed. The secularization, this book means the process whereby religious thinking, practice, and institutions lose social significance, particularly with regard to Christianity. But you also see this going on in Japan and other nations as they become more modern. Modernity has consequences. One of the inevitable consequences of modernity is that religion has less and less role in life. Now, some argue if one form of religion disappears, then another form of religious behavior arises to take its place. So you get mass entertainment, uh, you get mass rallies, you get movies, you get science, you get totalitarian politics and ideologies, expensive consumer goods. But uh, it's pretty hard to make the case that these things are religion. So... One of the, the biggest problems with modernity, problems in modernity, is that people are suffering acutely from a loss of emotional reassurance. And so traditionally, that is something people would get from religion. Okay, Philip says... Okay, have you read any Protestant confessions? Protestant confessions such as the Westminster Confession and the Reformed Confessions are thoroughly theocratic and holistic documents. There is nothing in them to substantiate your claim that Protestantism intrinsically leads to secularism. Yes, it does. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Protestantism emerged by saying that the political is really a separate realm. And so Martin Luther made alliances with, with German princes, and Henry VIII wanted to divorce his, his wives and get rid of his wives. And so there was a steady breaking up of, of the power of religion over all of life. So when you're a Catholic, you lead a corporate life. As a Protestant, it is much more individualist. The essence of Protestantism is the individual's relationship with God. Right? It's just you and God, which then leaves the rest of your life with other people increasingly secular compared to Catholicism, which, like Judaism, exerts is supposed to exert influence over all of life. It's filled with rituals in, in Catholic countries. Catholicism is a, usually a power in, in politics and throughout society. So in rebellion against this, you see in all Catholic countries, uh, anti-religion is a prominent theme in pornography, but in Protestant countries, there's very little about religion because religion doesn't squash people and dominate people in Protestant countries to the extent that it does in Catholic countries. So religion not dominating, not squashing, not cramping people in Protestant countries is a result of the increasing secularism of Protestant societies. So Protestant societies secularize much more rapidly and much more completely than Catholic societies. The first secular societies in human history evolved out of Protestant Northern Europe. 
Philip says, my point is that according to the official confessions of the Reformation, Protestants had exactly the same all-encompassing holistic view of the world and society that Catholics did. Simply not true in practice. You can find it in theory. So your immediate response to what I'm saying is to go for, for writings of theory. Right? I, I'm talking about reality. So once you had Protestant countries, the realm of the religious was considerably diminished as opposed to when the Catholic Church exerted enormous influence. Where does it say that in any Protestant confession? See, for you, religion's about theory. I'm talking about the reality. But what happens on the ground in Protestant countries is that much of life, which under Catholicism was sacralized, now gets turned over to realms outside of the religious. So you render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Westminster and Reform Confession notes Philip explicitly state the civil magistrates must be Christian and have a role in regulating religion. Do I know anything about Calvin's Geneva? Yes, I know something about Calvin's Geneva. There was a man there that Calvin had burned at the stake for denying the Trinity. Calvin's Geneva was a literal theocracy. Yes, it was. And, uh, and what happened? Right? That area became one of the first secular societies this world has ever known. But why was it that the, for the first time you had the rise of secular societies? Why did they emerge out of what were Protestant strongholds? Why didn't they emerge out of France or Spain or Italy? So today our ordinary everyday behavior is much more controlled by cause and effect thinking than in the past. We know more about the working of the physical and the social world than we used to. So we are more preoccupied these days with immediate empirical ends and more pragmatic tests. Right? We participate in a society that is increasingly regulated by technology, machines, that, that operate according to the criteria of efficiency. So we have the dominance of economic costing over spiritual aspiration. So the growth of these technological and instrumental orientations in our modern society does not eliminate our emotional needs, nor does it solve ultimate problems of meaning. So modern society does not cater as traditional society did for the collective gratification of the emotions, and the disappearance of religion is a major part of that change. We have societies now that are instrumentally oriented towards ever-increasing economic efficiency, which has left people feeling emotionally bereft and desperate for emotional reassurance. So traditionally, people have turned to religion, in the case of the West, to Christianity for emotional reassurance, for salvation. But these days, people less and less feel that they're going to get that emotional reassurance in religion. They turn to therapy or to yoga or to psychedelics. Uh, Philip says, I believe there's a stronger case to be made for the rise of secularism in the rise of the ideology of nominalism, not Protestantism, and nominalism preceded Protestantism. Well, how come it's only Protestant societies that uh, gave us the first secular societies? Now, 
These days, we increasingly associate religion with the clergy, people who are paid to be religious. Right? To preserve religion in modernity, we have to pay people to become religious. So lawyers control courts, doctors dominate healthcare and hospitals, and clergies, clergy have become the church. Because the laity are not nearly as involved as they used to be. So these days, average uh, church attendance is about 2 or 3% in Scandinavia, about 10% uh, in England, and supposedly 40% in the United States, but I think that's, those figures are dramatically overestimated, probably something closer to 20%. But the real question is, how much does that time in church, how much does that reflect a real religious orientation? And you should be able to see that in the lives of ordinary people in the outside of church. So the decline in church attendance was most obvious in the case of the nonconformist churches, the non-Anglican Protestant churches, because anyone who's born where Anglicanism has power is generally considered part of the Anglican church unless they explicitly identify otherwise. So the Church of England rests part of its claim to allegiance not on voluntary disposition, but on national and ethnic differences. It has a residual claim to loyalty as the religious expression of the English people who settled much of the United States, Canada, some of South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. So as actual attendance in Anglican churches diminishes, probably a high percentage of people can claim to belong the church itself. That many of these people who never go to church would not hesitate to define themselves as Protestant. So church attendance steadily declines in the industrial world. And there are fewer people on the books of the non-conformist churches. But uh, you don't have to do anything to be an Anglican, but to be born in, in England or really to, to have some sort of English connection. So religion exercises considerably less influence over people's lives than, than it once did. You see it in the smaller numbers of people who are involved in church work, in Sunday school teaching, who give their time and attention to religious thought and action. Religious publications have steadily given way to secular publications. So you have the occasional religious bestseller, but uh, religious books and periodicals today are a very tiny proportion of the total volume of publications sold. Now, in the early 19th century, the church had dominant control of the means of communication from the pulpit and at the church door. But by the middle of the 19th century, this dominance was broken. France was arguably the first modern secular state, and it was majority Catholic. And uh, who argues that, by the way? The French Revolution didn't create a secular society, but it did did uh, limit the power of the Catholic Church. All forms of conservative traditional Christianity affirm theological and doctrinal absolutes, including Protestantism. Yeah, but well, by definition, conservative traditional. So it used to be the church until the middle of the 19th century dominated the means of communication. 
Now, the services of the mass media are open to the religious today, but when they participate, when they go on TV, when they go on radio, they compromise that preeminence of prestige which information pertaining to the supernatural enjoyed in the past. Now, there is still a high demand for certain rituals, such as baptism, right? So a fairly large percentage of the population gets baptized. But it's hard to argue that this represents high religious belief. First of all, the child getting baptized hasn't made any volition. And if baptism is just another one of those things, which is every child's right, if we cannot just do enough for the children, then baptism is simply another extension of the welfare state. It's one of those welfare services to which children can be exposed without harm, possibly with benefit. So it used to be that a child was baptized for superstitious reasons. That a child who was unbaptized will be unlucky. That's, that's hardly a ringing Christian commitment to baptism. I think the Christian church would find that answer particularly laudable. Then we had confirmation, which is also supported by a generalized superstition. People are still proud of having been confirmed, but its significance as a promise of religious allegiance has disappeared, and it doesn't really correlate with religious status and authenticity. Confirmation, usually it occurs at the age where adolescent religiosity and the last vestiges of firm parental authority coincide. So when my parents asked me at age 16 if I wanted to get baptized, you know, I knew it would just make my life easier to go, yeah. So the young people who get confirmed, usually of the age where they're still not quite so sure of themselves, they can reject the claims of the sacred. But then, after age 13, 14, 15, religious participation dramatically declines until people get much older. So, spinsters participate quite often in, in religion. But uh, after about the age of 15, uh, until about the age of 70, usually there's not much religious participation. So Sunday is changed from a holy day with considerable restrictions on play to the day where parents and children, you know, go traveling for recreation. So the car, any clergyman says, has been the factor which has altered the pattern of Sunday leisure. Parents take children out with them. So the demand for more facilities on Sunday, more commercial facilities, become a threat to the church and to Sunday school. Just as the fundamentalists say, if you begin by making Sunday into fun day, you end by making it into sin day. So religious participation declines with age and with voluntary commitment. But spinsters are more than fully represented among the ranks of the most devout. So people whose lives are the most empty are perhaps the most likely to rediscover the power of religion. But for most nominal Christians, the church much more of a service facility, just like the synagogue for most Jews is much more of a service facility than a religious agency. It's the provider of occasional and reassuring rituals, much more than the disseminator of vital knowledge or as exemplars of moral wisdom. So the connection between the church 
the synagogue and the participants has shifted. So churches and synagogues now represent mainly what individuals want from them by way of authentic, prestigious, and self-enhancing ceremonies rather than what was once implied that the individual had obligations to the church or to the synagogue and needed to perform religious duties to maintain a Christian or a Jewish life. The churches and synagogues mainly are in business these days of performing rites of passage as some sort of you know, department of the welfare state. So in modernity, our connections with other people are more fragile than they used to be because we move more often. And with the world becoming ever more economically efficient, we have a significant decline in emotional reassurance. Marriages don't tend to last like they used to. But uh, people really want to get married in churches. And it's not really out of religion, but... Uh, the marriage ritual is usually the most important day in the life of an individual. There's the binding nature of the commitment, the social reorganization it signifies. There's the anxiety around this contract, the implied developments of the association, the establishment of a home, and the production and socialization of children. So the wedding day is usually the most important day in the life of the individual. So there is enormous demand that such a day should be marked by the most dramatic, the most authentic, and the most elaborate rituals possible. So in modernity, the family has become socially a more isolated unit. So as the detachment from the family of orientation enhances the significance of commitment to the family being founded, so the demand for a dramatic expression of the change of roles and the change of circumstances needs to be enhanced. And a wedding by a civil registrar lacks those elements of drama. So for intellectuals and rationalists, the registrar is just a sensible way of fulfilling the legal requirements, but it does not satisfy the demand for some elaborate external expression of emotion and public sentiment. So in an affluent society where lavish entertainment and spectacle are possible, right, you have to devise ceremonial and entertainment to, to make the wedding stand out from other events. And that's not easy to do, but the one feature which can distinguish a wedding is the authenticity of its awe-filled ceremony. So as long as the church can retain some sense of majesty and transcendence, some distinctiveness from the mundane and the everyday, it will find itself in high demand for the solemnization of marriages. And the final rite of passage for which there is widespread demand for the church is burial. So pretty much everyone has a religious funeral, right? You need to have extraordinary presence of mind at the time of your death to avoid religious officiation of your funeral. So the control of funerals is much more religiously professionalized than the control of baptisms, confirmations, and weddings. Now, a religious funeral is a matter of routine. But just because there's a religious funeral, this doesn't really demonstrate a religious commitment. But most people experience the decline of religion in childhood. There's a decline in church-going, church membership, sustained religious commitment, and general standing of the church in society. Now, the institutions of the church remain favorably placed, but 
their influence is much more in the appearance of power than the reality of it. Uh, the church's influence is usually more moral than political, exhortatory, and not mandatory. There's an enormous difference between the actual effectiveness and its appearance of solemnity and significance. So where the real decisions get made, generally speaking, not in church, not in synagogue. The, the criteria that determine our modern world not generally from traditional scriptural and ideological authorities. So society is becoming increasingly diverse in its activities and interests. Individuals are gaining extensive freedom in the regulation of their lives. And so the church has lost most of its authority it may once have had to control the situation. What I would like to see is someone saying, okay, we have Ta-Nehisi Coates, we have Ivron Kendi, but let's bring in Shelby Steele. Let's bring in Glenn Lowry. Let's bring in Bob Woodward. Uh, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Let's bring in Thomas Sowell. And let's hear what they, let the students hear what they have to say about what the way forward for Blacks should be and how they can best advance their own interests. And they just never hear that. They literally never hear it, Glenn. I'm telling you, they don't know who these people are. Yeah. Uh, so what, what can we do about that? I mean, that yeah. needs to happen, I, okay? I, I want to blame the institutions. I don't want to blame the ethnicity of the people who are in the institutions. I want to say conformity is something to the, what I might understand to be the spirit of the in, enterprise that I'm embedded in. I want to get to the top. I want to get along. I want to have allies and I don't want to have opposition. And, and so I, my antennae are up and I kind of see the way the wind is blowing and I have a tendency to conform to that. Uh, and I think that that's a very universal dynamic. And Yeah, I largely agree with uh, Glenn Lowry here. So I'm on to chapter two of this excellent book by Steve Bruce, Religion in Secular Society, published in 1966. And... Uh, he says that uh, movements such as Calvinism and Methodism and their offshoots, such as Seventh Adventism, in which I was raised, they embody a denominationalism, which is itself an aspect of secularization. So the Puritans represented a this-worldly asceticism. They created an ethic which was pragmatic, rational, controlled, and anti-emotional. So they... The destroyed works of art that were hitherto employed in religious worship is not a consequence of a mere theological conviction. It was a manifestation of a less emotional and a more disciplined and calculated religious spirit. Okay, This led to a heightened control of imaginative excess of romanticism and aesthetic appreciation. So it was a process by which people came to terms with hard empirical facts it cut through mysteries and superstitions. It cut through feelings, whether evoked by art or fancy, and sought in hard and fast terms to know in a matter-of-fact way just what the truth was. So this orientation, reflecting the qualities of the man of business in pursuit of his livelihood, we see in that the beginning of the secularization process. So those societies most dominated by religion are those filled with diverse mysteries, powers, objects, and deities. So Christianity attempted to eliminate the magical, to eliminate alien beliefs and rival theories of deity. But religiosity is much stronger where many of these ideas prevail, such as in Hinduism. So once order and system, such as it, theology, are introduced, 
into the apprehension of the divine sphere of things. As soon as contradictions are eliminated, as soon as the world is made sensible, meaningful, and in accordance with everyday understanding of things, then the first basic assumption of the divine world becomes difficult to apprehend. The Christianity went to war against all other religious beliefs, in particular against magic, but in so doing, it made acceptance of Christian ideas more difficult. So Puritanism, many of the persisting traditions and folk accretions to the basic essentials of the Christian faith and their practices and usages in the church were now questioned. So central Christian ideas remained, but in a simpler and more orderly way. So Godhead still pertained to strong emotional forces. We had God as Savior, as retributor, as the judge, the arbiter, the benefactor, the priver, even the destroyer of earth. So these are all concepts fairly close to the attributes portioned out to Indian deities. These emotions are now subject to a increased structure of regulation and control. So allowing for the inscrutability of God. So from among the Puritans came a significant impetus in the development of science, which is a manifestation of the rational spirits. No accident that it was among the Puritans and their successes that rationalism went further than mere application to theology, led increasingly to reasonable doubt about the scriptures and their accepted reinterpretation of the world. So it was among the later Puritans and Unitarians that we got an assertion against irrational doctrine such as the Trinity from the Puritan inheritance that you find early humanism. The Methodism emphasized continuity with older religion as it stemmed more directly from the Anglican Church. That Methodism became the religion of large industrial classes who were not prepared for a religion as rational as that of the early Puritans. But even in the name, Methodism, method, right? Method is the enemy of the religious spirit. Methodism captured something of the new spirit in religion. It accomplished the dissemination of a work ethic to new social strata, it permitted a more emotional expression of religious commitment than would be normal among the Puritans, and this emotionalism was an indispensable, indispensable accompaniment of the communication of new values to the new working classes whose lives had undergone profound disorganization. The Methodism became a disciplinary agent. It produced an ethic with many resemblances to Puritanism emphasized God's love more than his inscrutability. This is a more appropriate and accepted emotional attribute of a deity for the dependent industrial classes of Bristol and West Riding than the awfulness of God, who, when reason failed, could be given refuge in the inscrutability which Puritans conferred upon him. So in bringing about through religious agencies a new attitude of mind and socializing a new group to life circumstances, Methodism too was part of this secularizing process. It defined religious commitment. It eliminated superstition and magic. It disciplined and regulated relationships to the supernatural in ways that were especially appropriate to the working class. So in, in America in particular, your religion uh, signifies your social status. So let's uh, hear what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say. Welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, Joe Biden shuffled forth from seclusion this afternoon for a rare solo press conference. You may have seen it. It's about as common as Puxatawney Phil emerging. 
In fact, according to statisticians who keep track of this sort of thing, it was only his second since taking office a full year ago. And by the end, you were wishing that Joe Biden spoke in public less often. The whole thing was awful. It was totally weird and embarrassing, not just to him, but to the country. At one point, Biden treated us to a stream of consciousness thoughts about his son's former employer. That would be a small, corrupt nation called Ukraine. Apparently, Ukraine's eastern border with Russia, unlike, say, our southern border with Mexico, is a sacred boundary created by God that must be protected at all costs up to and including American lives. Why is that? Well, Joe Biden didn't say. The whole thing was confusing enough that we're going to spend some time unpacking it at much greater length on tomorrow's show. But in the meantime, here's what you should know. You are currently funding a proxy battle in Ukraine against the nuclear-armed Russian military, and that could very well erupt into a hot war that includes you, the United States. If nothing else, Biden made that very clear, so sleep well tonight. Then Biden bragged about himself, as he tends to do whenever he's awake. Can you think of any other president who's done so much in a year, he asked at one point. How do you respond to a question like that? Biden didn't wait for the answer. Instead, he got mad at a reporter who dared ask him about COVID. Watch. Did you overpromise to the American public what you could achieve in your first year in office? And how do you plan to course correct going forward? Why are you such an optimist? Look, I didn't overpromise. And what I have probably... Uh, outperform what anybody thought would happen. I outperformed. What's well, true, actually. Outperform, meaning more Americans have died from corona on my watch than under evil anti-science Cheeto man, which isn't easy, you dog-faced pony soldier. Stick that in your hat and smoke it. And uh, welcome to Elliot Blatt. Cheeto man, which isn't easy, you dog-faced pony soldier. Stick that in Elliot. Elliot, speak to me, bro. Elliot. Hello? Yes. You can't hear me? Okay, I'm having a little problem here. Let's... Loading. Okay, Elliot, can you hear me now? Yeah, hello. How's it going, Blessings. bro? Blessings. Blessings. Blessings to you. Thank you. Thank you. Saw the link, so I decided to join. I haven't been, I haven't been listening, so. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I saw, I've been, I was on a meeting. I had a late meeting today, so, uh, you know, I needed a little, I need a little, little blow off some steam, Luke. Excellent. <laughs> How may I be of service? Well, I just wanted to report, I've been, uh, I'm sort of a late blooming football fan. Okay. And, uh. So I watched all of the recaps of all of the playoff games that happened this past weekend. Okay. And I was just seeing, I was using what I learned from you about how the game is really played and like what it all means, you know, all the, the game within the game, you know? Right. And um, I came up with a prediction that I'm pretty proud of, but okay. I think the Chiefs are the best team out there right now. What do you think? Uh, I think I'd go with Tampa Bay. Really? Brady, yeah. huh? Yeah. His senior citizen status notwithstanding. Yes. Really. Those maybe, you know, you know what it is? I was wondering maybe I was a little bit um hypnotized by those those bright red uniforms that the Chiefs have. Yeah. They just seem to be so crisp and explosive. They just seem to be a power pack team. 
And well, I noticed like power, power, they are a powerful team. Yeah. Well, I just noticed that the passes, like the pass completions, there was no bobbling, you know, it was just crisp, boom, boom, just like like video game quality. There were, you know, with like San Francisco, there's all this moment, they're bobbling, are they gonna catch it? Are they not gonna catch it? But the Chiefs, you're just never in doubt. They just catch it. You know? And then I like the Rams. The Rams seem to have something going on. What do you think about the Rams? Uh, they look good too. I mean, it could be the, the Rams, Green Bay, or Tampa Bay representing the NFC. Where's the foot? Where's Super Bowl being held? I don't year, know. Because you know? it, it's always, is it always a warm weather climate or do they move it around? Uh, is, is it they can move it world? around because they're indoor stadiums. Oh, okay. That so would take place in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll stop by. <laughs> maybe I'll call. I'll just leave a message. Maybe I'll call. Um, so, uh, man, that would be fun. Um, but what if it were the Rams? There, it's the LA Rams, correct? That's right. So, the, is it fair that a team have the home field advantage? Sure, if they they earn their way. Yeah, but I always thought that they moved it to a neutral location. No, they've got to schedule it in advance. Uh, okay. Well, I'm still learning. I'm still new to this football fan thing. But it is total. It's total entertainment candy. Yes. You know? I can see why people really get excited about it. But Do you, do you find it more exciting than going to church or synagogue? <laughs> Just a little bit. How many, a little... how many times have you been to synagogue in your life? once <laughs> and what was that like it was very weird um so it was sort of uh i must have been you know like uh maybe 32 and my friend ariel who who sort of you know he he's he's a proper jew on, on both sides you know but never really religious but then sort of sort of mid you know his late 20s early 30s he sort of got religion um and you know really embraced the tradition and so he he dragged me along to to so this this very but it was it wasn't an orthodontic or it wasn't ortho you know it was very very liberal um and he dragged me along it was in this uh, it was in the north end of boston i don't know if you know boston well enough but north end is like uh where um, you know John Kerry lives, it's a very tony neighborhood. Nice, beautiful brick, old brick buildings and things. And uh, he he dragged me along. It was in one of these buildings. You know, it was it had been closed for many years, and then they decided to resurrect it. But it was sort of uh, it was basically run by women, you know. So, which I realize is a terribly ortho, you know, orthodox. But anyway, we go. I go in, and amazingly enough. The guy in front of me, he was wearing a kippah that was branded with the New York with the with the New England Patriots. Now I found that a bit surprising. Is that, uh, uh, that, yeah, that's fairly common. I mean, more Lakers that, here, and or or often the kippah would have Barack Obama on it. This, this or Donald Trump. There's How do you feel when you see that? that? Is that uh, 
it's huh? fine. Nothing. It's it's uh it's just part of the game, huh? Just part of the game. So what year was this that you attended Shaw? Uh this would have been um probably two thousand four. And and why haven't you been back? You didn't feel like your soul was fed? No, I didn't. It was actually quite chaotic. Yeah, it wasn't. It was probably a Jewish event. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> well played. Well played, Luke. Uh, it was. Um, I didn't get the point. There, there was no solemnity about it. So I, I don't understand a religious service that doesn't have any sort of solemnity or severity about it. Well, it's because it's not primarily a religious service. So yeah. The name, the name for a synagogue in Hebrew is Beit Knesset, which means meeting place. So it's mm. not Beit Tefillah, house of prayer. It's not mm. house of house of solemnity. It's not a house of reverence. It's a meeting place. So, mm. so Judaism is not primarily a religion. It's primarily a tribal identity. And so you go to gather with your fellow members of your tribe. You don't primarily go there to worship God. So it's a yeah. very different experience than church. Well, I told you about some of, uh, maybe I haven't told you about some of my sort of brushes with the tribe, as it were. Oh, I lost you, Luke. I'm here. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm always here for you, bro. Oh, I looked at the other thing and it, uh, you were muted. So, well, so I remember, uh, you know, years ago, many, many years ago, I was sort of, um, I mean, I was young. I was maybe 25. And there was um, a Habag guy out in front, out in Harvard Square, kind of recruiting, mm-hmm. you know? So I used to play chess in Harvard Square. And uh, he was out there recruiting, and I was sort of, you know, kind of adrift, wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life, wasn't sure about my career, what I was going to do, all that kind of stuff. And... Um, so basically, he was off, he was out there offering a free trip to Israel, and for like a month or three months, six months, some you know, it sounded like a really like all free, you know. So it sounded like a really interesting opportunity, and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll check into this. Maybe that could be fun. Thinking more lines of well, this would be an interesting cultural experience, you know. And uh, so I get to talking to him, and then like. He asked me if I'm Jewish, and then I say, well, my father's Jewish. And then he says, is your mother Jewish? And then I had to sort of, you know, had this moment of, do I lie or do I tell the truth? So I told him the truth. <laughs> I told him no. And basically, you know, just the, all the air went out of him. <laughs> well, you're not Jewish from, from not his Jewish, perspective. Though. Yeah. So, like... Why should I be part of a tribe that doesn't want me for a member, bro? That doesn't consider me a member, bro. Well, uh, life can be lonely and people, people, many people like to have a community. So that there are, like you could go to a reform temple and they, they consider you Jewish. But uh, tribes, uh, groups that have a higher commitment, they also have higher standards and they also have more demands. So uh, more liberal forms of Judaism are more easygoing and welcoming and don't have s- such high standards. But uh, high commitment religion requires high commitment from people and uh, 
that, that would require you to do a formal conversion if you wanted to be a part of traditional Judaism. Yeah. And so I basically, I, I got wet out. I was weeded yep. out. So, and then years later, I had the experience that I just told you about. But yeah, it was tempered by this, you know, I don't want to be like this sort of half member, you know? I mean, I, I didn't want to put in the effort if someone's going to always be looking down the nose at me and thinking, well, he's not really, you know? I don't want any of that in my life. I don't want that crap. And like, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a social person like you, Loke. I, I don't like, I like small amounts of socialization, socializing, not too much. And I really just, I feel a, just a lot of pressure starts building up in my head. And uh, I, how many times have you been to church? Uh, Christian church? Yeah. Uh, um, I went to Quaker meeting once. You ever go to Quaker meeting? I'm not sure. Quaker meeting has begun. No more talking, no more fun. <laughs> You've never been to Quaker meeting? It's another sure. one of these sort of schismatic Protestant. Yeah, I sects. know what it is. I, okay. I yeah. Okay. Well, I, I just, for the audience, I'm trying to hold up my, uh, my end of the... I almost went to a uh, Protestant, probably a Baptist church once when I was very young and I got to the doorway and I just got really scared and I ran away. I was like 10. So so that's do, a, you, do you have a religious impulse? Uh, yeah, I do. But and how does it manifest? It manifests in my over my incredible charisma and my over over overwhelming love for humanity. I've always noticed those two things about you. <laughs> I don't talk about my spiritual life in public. I don't want to be accused of proselytizing for one thing. Well. Is that, is that, that's, that's <clears throat> bogus. Me. I mean, we all proselytize for that, which we believe in. But do we though? Yes. Do we all? Yes. I, I guess I used to, I might've when I was younger, but now I don't, I'm not a proselytizer. In fact, I think proselytizing does more to push somebody away than it does to attract them. So how would you proselytize in your younger days? Well, I used to be a very aggressive vegetarian. And so I would publicly shame <laughs> my family members for, uh, for eating meat. And when did of, you, are you still a vegetarian? I'm not now. I'd like to eventually, I would like to get back to that if I could, but it's my attempts at doing that have failed. My have you ever tried uh, grass-fed beef organs from ancestral supplements? No, are you still doing those? Oh, yeah. The best, yeah. man. I've got a whole new yeah. level of vitality. Um, I've been doing the opposite. I'm going the opposite direction. I've been trying to um, eat more grapefruit. Have you found that it makes you gay? Grapefruit? No, vegetarianism. Um, it makes you gassy. Yes, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I like mean particularly unreal. it's not easy for me because... Jews have had a really negative experience with gas. 
I know. I put you in a very And so spot. like I go into trouble and like I release this gas attack and and uh, it doesn't go down well. <laughs> it's like that. it's the bloody beans. <laughs> yes. Like I eat lots of legumes. Yeah. Lentils yeah. and beans and I mean to break yeah. it down, to break this stuff down in the stomach, it requires enormous amounts of gas. And right. I can try to hold it, but it's very uncomfortable and and really restricts my movement. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like a bomb that could go off at any minute. Right, right. There's a lot of tension and stress involved. In that. Yeah, I once like I, it cost you a career opportunity. It know? did. Like I took some <laughs> milk of magnesia. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, went to acting class, and was yeah. asked to come up front and do a scene. And about yeah. five minutes into the scene, the milk of magnesia just started. <laughs> powering this this uh flatulence that uh i fought but it ended up lasting about 35 seconds <laughs> it, it, it got more of a reaction than anything i ever did as an actor <laughs> that's right you had an acting you had a stint as a uh, and, and then the the teacher threw me out of the class <laughs> Also, because I was on those like, grounds, or well, also he walked in when I was getting this woman's top off, uh, when I was supposed to be working on a scene, uh, yeah. and maybe so, some things I said. Oh, let's let's end this. This is this repulsive topic. Oh, oh yeah. So let's get back to your religious impulse. So uh, I I don't want to. I, I should quote you a bird song. Okay, here. I'll, 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 I got some lyrics for you. All right. You ready for this, Lou? Yeah. <clears throat> Lou, Mama told me when I was young, come sit beside me, my only son, and listen closely what I have to say. And if you do this, it will help you some sunny day. Oh, yeah. Oh, take your time and don't live too fast. Troubles will come and they will pass. Go find a woman. Yeah, and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there's someone up above. That's beautiful. Well, if you don't want to talk about your religious impulse, what about your spiritual impulse? What do you do with that? Where do you put that? And you're just not like giving it out at bathhouses and Castro. No, 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 no. I live it, Luke. I live it. Every interaction with me, you come away better. Every time anyone interacts with me, they feel uplifted, Luke. They want to stay. They want to linger. They want to dawdle. They want to just sort of absorb what I'm emitting. Not what Miss Chang told me. <laughs> Who's Miss Chang? My colleagues? Yeah, one of your colleagues. No, this is my struggle. <laughs> yes, as well. don't, don't say that word. It can send <laughs> that's, someone. That's the wrong, wrong phrase there, especially in the Luke Ford show. It, it can send them off on a, on a bender. People don't know how to handle the struggle. Can't just keep it on weekends like normal people. Luke? Yes, sir. Forget your lust for the rich man's gold. All you need is in your soul. And you can do this, oh babe, if you try. 
All that I want for you, my son, is to be satisfied. Leonard Skinner, Luke. What do you think about Leonard Skinner? Like he's the one right-wing rock musician. Well, it's a band. And many of whom perished in a plane accident, in a, in a plane crash. It's one of those rock and roll stories. But they were great. They were great. But they also had the Sweet Home Alabama song where he uh, he calls out Neil Young for, uh, you know, this whole story? I'm not sure. Neil Young wrote a song, Southern Man, You Better. You know, that one? Okay. You know, it's basically, it was about the civil rights movement in the South. And Neil Young is calling out the Southern man and chastising him for his, his moral failings. So in return, Leonard Skinner wrote this song, um, Sweet Home Alabama. And, you know, here, I'll, I'll give the lyrics. Why not? Here we go. This is a very important history. Very important rock and roll in me. I think I'm not grateful. <laughs> well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember. A Southern man don't need him around anyhow. Sweet home Alabama, sweet home Alabama. So they, uh, I guess Alabama, they call, it, they call Alabama Alabama. It's one of those Aussie-like um, colloquialisms. Okay. <laughs> Luke, am I boring you? You can say so. I want to get back to your spiritual practices. What, what spiritual practices are you engaged in these days? Oh, God. Who, how many people in the chat here? I don't know. Let me see. We got 16. But they're going to drop like just, flies unless spill you, my you guts. spill. spill. I, I don't spill my guts to some spur that's going to hunt me down. If you, don't, you don't have to just tell them about your spiritual practices. It might inspire people. Okay. No, I can't do this. Maybe. If I was prepared, maybe. But uh, I don't want to be called a proselytizer. So why aren't you a religious man? Because you're afraid of people and you're afraid of being called names. Who said I wasn't a religious man? Well, you did. I don't go to organize things. Then you're because... not religious. What, what do you do that is shaped by your religiosity? Like if I walked into your house on a Sunday, what would I see that showed that you're a religious man? You'd see all these uplifting paintings. It's, you'd, you'd notice how well kept my place is and how orderly my lifestyle is and how appreciative of nature I am and how um, sunny and positive my disposition is. <laughs> None of those things require religiosity. They're all completely uh, have right. no correlation with religiosity. So, in other words, that well, they're they're, they're, okay, but they're informed by a belief in the one of those philosophers. What was that philosopher? Uh, it's like maybe Kant or something like that. And they said, "Life is either when thinking about spiritual topics, right? Whether God exists or doesn't exist." The answer is yes or it's no, right? It's either capital Y, yes, or capital Y, no, right? And if you believe in capital Y, yes, everything you do, everything flows from that. 
people who believe that the answer is yes are religious people. And people that believe the answer is no are not religious people. And as a consequence of that belief, they exude something special, something noticeable, something subtle and appreciable. So what are your religious beliefs? I will talk about them someday, but it, <laughs> I just <sighs> I don't know how to talk about this in public without. I have religious beliefs, okay, and. But any my attempt to describe them will make it seem very um it'll sound new age in a way that I don't want to sound because I don't have the right vocabulary to describe it, so I'd rather not be misunderstood if that makes any sense so what do you like to think about when you masturbate? <laughs> you Luke. <laughs> I've got, I got the picture. Your icon here with a beard, it just works every time. Come on, you can share. This is a safe place. <laughs> I just told you, right? Uh, we're we're going to find your erotic map. Like, we're going to we're going to trace that minefield through which you know you must heroically journey to achieve satisfaction. So what I do is I put a j big pile of grapefruit on my dresser. This great, just big, corpusculent grapefruit, just bursting with life, you know, all round. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, that's what I think about, Luke. And does it remind you of your eighth grade teacher? It reminds me, actually, I had an incredibly hot seventh grade teacher. Okay. Does it remind and, you of uh, incredibly hot she was, she was blonde. Uh, well, kind of like a dirty blonde, you know? And um, um, kind of looked like a Barbie doll, you know? And then, like, maybe a year or two later, I'm walking around downtown, and I see her hanging out with her friends, and she's smoking a cigarette. Whoa. <laughs> It must be promiscuous. This was very traumatizing because I only knew her in these incredible, you know, wholesome environments. And to see her outside in situ with a cigarette, it's very red pilling. So is she the, the most erotic woman in your pantheon? Yeah. Inspiration? She, she, yeah. We used to have to take home ec in junior high school. Did you have to take home yes. ec? Really? Yes. So you know how to work a sewing yes. machine? I, I did then. Yeah. And like the glue gun, you know how to work a glue gun? I guess. And I was very bad at home ec, I have to say. Like I couldn't even uh, thread the... You You'd be proud of you now. I mean, she could hear you now. <laughs> See you now. Yeah. Be proud. She's probably in a bar right now, like missing teeth and... <laughs> Just like, a, just, a, just a washed up drunk, like three ex-husbands and a, you know. 
it's weird, you know, on Facebook, you look now at people and how they've aged and what they're doing now. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not. One woman I remember, um, she was very, uh, she liked cheesecake, eating cheesecake. And she used to make a <laughs> fuss about how much she li liked eating cheesecake. And right now, you know, we're Facebook friends. And I see you now. She, she's like 450 pounds. It's, it's, wow. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to watch, bro. <laughs> it's it's wow. hard to watch. So, which, you know, down south, I think that's probably the average weight. Wow. All right, I got, I got a story for you, Luke. Yes, sir. Um, somewhat religious. <clears throat> So uh, in my chess playing days, one of the chess players, one of the regulars. So the chess playing, you know, we would meet a very specific place. We all come to know each other, you know, and we'd play chess. And it was sort of like live streaming before there was live streaming. It was what live streaming replaced. This sort of regular gathering of the same people to chit chat. You know, so the chess was sort of secondary to the just the social occasion, you know. So because nobody called each other, we didn't you know, we just knew we'd see we knew we'd see each other at the chess tables. So, you know, we would save up what we needed to say. We would conduct our business, we'd do whatever we did at the chess tables. So anyway, one of the players was named Jerry. Jerry was a very tall black man uh who shaved his head bald, uh, bald like completely bald and I, I think he must have waxed his head because it had like a certain shine to it like the street lamp would hit it and then it would sort of reflect back on you i mean he had like a mirror-like head and um so anyway an important unimportant detail so jerry was called became called jesus jerry so, hey, did you see Jesus Jerry? Hey, last night I was there, I saw Jesus Jerry. Jesus Jerry was there. And then everyone would start laughing, right? Just the mention of the word Jesus Jerry, people would just fall over laughing. So why is this? So when Jerry was not a particularly good, good chess player, but he, he had high hopes and he worked at it. And so you'd be sitting there playing chess and then out of nowhere, this high-pitched, squealing noise would just erupt out of out of nowhere. And it would be, what? No! Jesus! You know, this just blood-curdling shriek would come out of Jerry. And uh, that's how Jerry would uh, react when he started losing a game that he thought he was winning. And he would just, he would berate himself. Jerry, Jerry, Jesus, Jerry, you know, on and on. This just, just ongoing self-flagellation done at this, like, like with the squeal of like a, of a stuck pig, you know? Yeah. And everybody, anybody with an earshot would basically fall on the ground laughing because it was so goddamn funny to be around, you know? And, uh, <laughs> it was this 
I don't know. It's just hard to explain, but how this, so you could just talk to anybody and just go, Jesus, Jerry. And it, it yeah. would just wreck somebody. <laughs> Whoever heard that would just be wrecked laughing because they would remember the same thing. Those moments, you know, it's those little moments that uh, in-person life that I don't think people uh, get to have anymore. They don't have to. They don't have that. Maybe that's why you like synagogue so much. You get these sort of face-to-face meetings with real characters. Jesus, Jerry. Why'd you Jesus. Do that? But you got to really shriek it. Just shriek it like you're being stabbed, like you're being shanked in prison or something, you know, just <laughs> anyway, Luke, I, this is the end of my day. I just wanted to blow off some steam. I'm not, you know, I don't want to like, I'll talk to religious someday, you know, okay, when I, when I get my thoughts orderly. You know, it's not, I don't want to like, I don't want to say no, but you know, it's like, <clears throat> I think you need to do mushrooms before we can talk more about religion. You know, just just saying okay <laughs> all right bro uh, okay. i'm gonna i'm gonna make dinner now okay take care all right.